You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good morning, and this is a special dean's class. I'm very excited that we have decided to read Pilgrim's Progress, or rather The Pilgrim's Progress, Part 1, together as a church family. We're asking all small groups and all individuals to walk through this with us. This is the introduction to The Pilgrim's Progress and the life of John, life and ministry of John Bunyan. And uh, we are asking all of you to read this book. And in the weeks following, there'll be 15 to 20 minute teachings on different sections of the book that will lead us to the end of our term in December. We had decided to do this, and when I say we, it's not the royal we, it's uh, myself and other staff members who are in charge of these things, last year. And when COVID hit, I thought, well, this is a dumb idea. This doesn't seem to be the appropriate time for us to read The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, But they convinced me otherwise. They thought that this was the best time to read The Pilgrim's Progress. One, it is a story about a journey which uh, is filled with great adversity and the need for perseverance as a Christian. And two, because we're not able to gather together, this is one of the few ways in which we're actually able to do something together. Uh, And so we are asking you to read The Pilgrim's Progress as we move along. There are two editions, uh, one of which can be found free. Uh, You can download it to your Kindle or EPUB on your uh, iPad, uh, and that is from Desiring God, and that is Bunyan in his uh, original uh, manuscript. Or there's an updated version, which is the best contemporary version. The English is easier to understand. And as I've gone through them, I'm very uh, happy to say that um, the new version syncs well with the older version. But whatever version you choose to read, we uh, have made them available in the bookstore. You can call up. They're actually less expensive in our bookstore than they are on Amazon. And uh, even if you're not able to make it down on Wednesdays when the bookstore is open, uh, you can uh, pick it up on Sunday uh, when you come downtown uh, for our services there in the Port Cashier lot. If uh, you're one of those people that says, well, I don't want to read Pilgrim's Progress with the rest of our church family, uh, no doubt you're a contrarian, uh, and I would rebuke you, especially if you've never read the book. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress is, uh, until recently, uh, the, uh, was the best-selling book in the English language next to the Bible. Uh, I will give you uh, a free cup of Advent coffee if you can tell me what book uh, within the past uh, several years surpassed Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, and it'll also help me to know that you actually are listening to what I'm saying. This morning's class will be a little bit longer than these 15 to 20 minute segments, but that's because uh, I want to give an introduction to the man, John Bunyan, and Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress, an introduction. John Bunyan was born in 1628 in the village of Elstow outside of Bradford, England. I'm sorry, Bedford, England. Bedford is situated north uh, of London. It sits uh, between Cambridge and Oxford. So if you were actually able to take a bus from Oxford to Cambridge, which is not a, a very direct route, you're going to actually go by 
uh, Bedford, and you can look out the window and see the city in which John Bunyan grew up and in which he ministered. He grew up in a modest home. Uh, He said that it was very poor, but I think that he was exaggerating a bit uh, because he had his family owned property. They owned their home there in the village. There had been Bunyans there uh, since 1199. In fact, the area in which John Bunyan grew up as a child was called Bunyan's End, and his father, when he died, left a will. And the poorest of the poor would never have left a will, but John Bunyan's father did. But they were uh, people of modest means. John Bunyan's father was a tinker, uh, a brazier. Uh, He would mend pots and pans. Today, if your Teflon wears out in the pan or a a handle breaks off or they're just a little too dented up, uh, you you pitch them uh, and you get on Amazon or go down to the store and get a new set of pots and pans. But not so in the 17th century. Uh, John Bunyan's father would go along and knock on the door and ask, do you have any pots and pans to be mended? And he would take them and he would work the forge and bring them back uh, to a state of newness. John Bunyan did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, In fact, uh, it was uh, a sad home to grow up in uh, toward the end because as he entered into his teenage years in 1644 with the English Civil War well underway, his mother and sister died. And uh, one can imagine the stress that that would have on a young John Bunyan and the relationship between he and his father. And so Bunyan thought it best to leave his home, the village of Elstow, and to join the parliamentary forces. Bedford was an area that was very supportive uh, of the parliamentary forces, uh, even though it was very close to Oxford, which happened to be the capital of the, uh, the Cavaliers, those who were fighting for Charles I. Uh, but again, there wasn't a lot of travel between these places. And so at a very young age, Bunyan went off and joined the army to fight against the crown on behalf of Parliament. Bunyan probably never saw action. Uh, There's no record, nor does he indicate that he was a part of any great battle, uh, but surely he saw the results of battle and and knew what it meant uh, to be in the midst of a great fight. But in 1649, with the end of the English Civil War and the beheading of Charles I uh, and Charles II, the heir, fleeing to France, uh, Bunyan went back uh, to Bedford and he was married. Now, strangely enough, we have no idea what this woman's name is. Uh, It's not recorded anywhere that we have been able to find or or that we we know of. Uh, Certainly it must be in a register somewhere in the parish of Bedford, but we simply cannot find it. And so we don't know what uh, John Bunyan's wife's name was. But she came from a godly family. And also she was from modest means. Into the marriage she brought no dowry. In fact, Bunyan said that between the two of them they didn't have two spoons together. But she did bring into the marriage two books. Upon her father's death, he left her two things, two books. Arthur Dent's Plain Man's Path to Heaven and Lewis Bailey's The Practice of Piety. And it was within this marriage that Bunyan began to show an interest in Christianity. Uh, Bunyan did grow up somewhat educated, more educated than most people in the mid-17th century. Uh, 
He knew how to read. He knew how to write. Uh, he had uh, dabbled in a little bit of Greek and Latin. Uh, but uh, certainly he said that if it hadn't been for these two books coming into his home, uh, he was afraid that he would have lost the ability to read altogether. And so he began to read these books that his wife brought uh, with her. He began attending a Baptist congregation in Bedford as a result of reading these books. And uh, growing up, he uh, actually one of the things that John Bunyan really loved was bell ringing. And he could hear the bells of Bedford from the little village of Elstow and even got into bell ringing at one point uh, but gave it up because he was so under the conviction of sin that he was afraid that by ringing the bells himself that God would actually cause the roof to fall in and the bells to fall on top of him. And it was a result of these books and uh, his marriage and uh, his uh, starting to be a member of this Baptist congregation in uh, Bedford, uh, and the birth of his daughter Mary. Uh, Mary was born blind, and Bunyan said that uh, having a child born blind uh, helped him to understand what it meant to love and to be loved. So God was clearly working on his heart, and over a period of years, Bunyan said that he felt his soul in great conflict. And uh, I'd like to read to you Bunyan's own uh, words. This is uh, Marcus Lone, Sir Marcus Lone's, uh, makers of Puritan history, who was the Archbishop of Sydney uh, in uh, the 20th century. And this is uh, what... Um, what Bunyan wrote of. Uh, There was a time, uh, gosh, I'm going to have to get into this, but uh, King James I actually issued uh, something called the Book of Games, and um, it was a big controversy uh, because what James said was that here are some games that you can play and some things that you can do on Sunday, which was culturally taboo. uh, But Bunyan loved to play games, and he's playing these games, and he was... um, uh, playing a game called Cat, and uh, which is where you kind of throw a ball up and you, you strike it with a bat. Uh, but this is uh, Bunyan's uh, own uh, words. Uh, it was after lunch on a day when uh, he was playing a game of Cat somewhere on the green round, uh, the old market cross of Elstow. He had struck once and was about to strike the ball again when a challenge flashed through his mind. Bunyan said he heard the voice, Will thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? Well, there were other players on the field, but he said nothing to them. Bunyan writes, Suppose that there be a hell in very deed, he was to ask others. Not that I do question it any more than I do whether there be a sun to shine. But he began to be so burdened that he wrote, For thought I, if the case be thus, my state is surely miserable. Miserable if I leave my sins, and but miserable if I follow them. I cannot be but damned. And if I must be so, I had as good be damned for many sins as to be damned for few. So Bunyan tried to eat, drink, and be merry kind of life. And he continued on. But it was one day 
When Bunyan, even though he was interested in spiritual things and probably to honor his wife who seemed to bring some godliness into the home, he was sitting in front of a storefront and he was using profanity in a profuse manner to a friend. And a woman came up to him, a woman of ill repute, and challenged him and said, John Bunyan, your mouth is so foul that it's corrupting the entire youth of our village. Uh, Not just a significant accusation, but coming from a significant kind of person. And so with this woman of ill repute taking him to task for what he knew he shouldn't be doing, Bunyan really began to struggle. And as a result of that confrontation, Bunyan resolved to change his life. I'll no longer use profanity. I'll live by the Ten Commandments. I'll do right in the eyes of God. And so he did. And later on, he would write that even his neighbors would acknowledge that he was a new man, that he was a changed person. But reflecting back, Bunyan said, but if I were to die in that state, I surely would have gone to hell. Outwardly, he tried to conform to God's word and put on a great display to the people of his village, but inwardly, he was still completely lost. It would be some time later, as Bunyan continued to struggle and and to wonder, uh, what will become of me? How can I get right with God? That he wrote this. Upon a day, the good providence of God did cast me to Bedford to work on my calling, that is, to be a tinker. And in one of the streets of that town I came that where there were three or four women sitting in a door in the sun and talking about the things of God. And being now willing to hear them discourse, he had come to a point where he really was interested in spiritual things. Bunyan said, I drew near to hear what they said. For I was now a brisk talker also myself in the matters of religion. But now I may say, I heard, but I understood not. For they were far above me, out of my reach. For their talk was about a new worth, a new birth, the work of God on their hearts. Eavesdropping on these women, Bunyan realized that he was no Christian at all. They might as well have been speaking some foreign tongue from the South Pacific because to him it was simply gibberish. It was beyond him. And that encounter drove Bunyan with great intention to find the way to heaven. I want to be able to speak that language I want to know the God that they know. I want to have the experience of the new birth that they've experienced. Well, he did interact with these women at some point because they went to John Gifford, who was a pastor there in the town, and John Gifford began to minister to John Bunyan. And as a result of that, John Bunyan finally became a Christian. And this is what he said of this experience. 
Uh, Marcus Lone sets us up by saying he was sitting, that is Bunyan, sitting by the fire at home when he was seized by the thought that he must go to Jesus. Now this is two years probably after the encounter with the women. And the glories of his kingdom were swept before his view. His mind was filled with the vision which is described in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. And then Bunyan cried, With joy I told my my wife, Oh, now I know, I know, that night was a good night to me. I never had but few better. I longed for the company of some of God's people that I might have imparted unto them what God had showed me. Christ was a precious Christ to my soul that night. I could scarce lie in my bed for joy and peace, triumph. It was a long journey, years in the making. While sitting in the fire, the penny dropped. It all came together, and Bunyan experienced the new birth and knew that he was a child of God. That was around 1654, 1655, and from that point on, John Bunyan was a man on fire. And John Gifford recognized this, that this was no ordinary conversion, that God had a great plan in store for John Bunyan, tinkerer though he may be. So John Bunyan began to preach and he began to write, but in three years' time, in 1650, uh, or actually uh, in, yes, three or four years' time, uh, John Bunyan's wife, uh, the unnamed woman who must have had such a significant influence on his life, died and left him a widow with four children, one of them, Mary, being blind. And so in his loneliness, John Bunyan really threw himself into his new work as a preacher and as a writer. In 1660, uh, Charles II was uh, brought back over and was the monarchy in England was restored, the Commonwealth ended, and as a result, uh, John Bunyan, uh, around 1662, uh, went to serve a 12-year prison sentence for preaching without a license. Now, the arrest that was made and his imprisonment for 12 years wasn't 12 years uh, doing hard labor at Alcatraz or, or even in any sort of prison, depending on the warden of the prison or the disposition of the guards, Bunyan was actually able uh, to come and go as he pleased. In fact, uh, he got married uh, and, and at least fathered one child uh, during his time in prison. So he wasn't completely confined to that. But while he was in prison, he wrote what I think are his two most important works. The first one was his own spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is a great little book uh, to read uh, after you read Pilgrim's Progress. And secondly, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress was mainly wrote while he was there in prison in Bedford. In 1672, he received a license to preach. Uh, Charles II was feeling generous and did want to see uh, some religious toleration. Uh, Charles II actually was restored to the throne uh, with an understanding that he would uh, allow for religious toleration. Uh, But there were forces at play in the Church of England that tied his hands in that matter. 
Uh, but during this time, in the early 1670s, uh, Bunyan was able to secure a license to preach and was primarily preaching there at the Baptist meeting in Bedford. However, in 1676, Bunyan was put in prison again for six months. And during those six months, uh, it was, he was there because he failed to attend the parish church because it was compulsory. And he just simply didn't, even though he liked the bells of St. Paul's, uh, he was not really interested in uh, preaching or, or rather listening to the preacher there at St. Paul's. So he was in jail for six months. In 1678, Pilgrim's Progress was finally, uh, and I call it Pilgrim, that's shorthand for The Pilgrim's Progress, Part 1, which is what we're going to read. Uh, That was published in 1678 uh, by the publishing house uh, controlled by John Owen, the great Puritan divine who was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell for all intents and purposes, the sort of de facto Archbishop of Canterbury uh, during the Commonwealth period, and it was wildly successful even during Bunyan's lifetime, and it has never been out of print uh, since 1678. And in 10 years' time, in 1688, John Bunyan died. And he is uh, uh, buried uh, in the, cemetery, the nonconformist cemetery in Bunhill, uh, London, which is in the East End, not too far away from St. Paul's Cathedral. And if you go visit, it's the most prominent grave, but there are lots of other great uh, people buried there. Uh, Susanna Wesley, John Wesley's mother, uh, Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, is, uh, is buried there. Uh, Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Crusoe, is buried there, among uh, many others. And it's not a very big cemetery. And while you're there, Aldersgate Chapel, where uh, Wesley was converted, is just around the corner. So you can go there and, uh, and see uh, Wesley's cottage and the chapel and all of those things. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so John Bunyan uh, died a much loved and, and popular man. Um, the Lord Mayor of London presented him with a, a silver-headed cane uh, in his lifetime. Uh, Bunyan, uh, although maligned by some within the life of the Church of England, uh, was widely loved uh, and respected. In fact, John Owen went so far as to say that he would exchange all of his learning in order to just preach one sermon like Bunyan preached. A man of the people, very simple, very direct, and that comes through in Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, and it's just it's it's magical uh, to read, and you can understand why Bunyan was such an effective pastor. Uh, Bunyan was a Puritan, and uh, that mean that word means lots of things these days. Uh, I want to say something about the English Civil War. Uh, The English Civil War broke out primarily as a political battle between Parliament and uh, the king. Uh, Charles I believed in the divine right of kings and also made a political mistake by marrying a Roman Catholic princess uh, who came to England and maintained her Roman Catholic practices and, in fact, had an extreme influence over Uh, Charles I, and that would even bleed into, no pun intended, uh, the religious devotions of Charles uh, II after the Restoration. 
And so uh, the, the religious question was already decided in England. Um, England was a decidedly Protestant nation. And uh, it was, of course, uh, even though it was decidedly Protestant, especially amongst the people, it seemed to still be up for grabs, at least according to Charles I. And, uh, and he was uh, a bit of a dictator. I know that some people have tried to uh, immortalize uh, Charles I, sometimes referring to him as king and uh, martyr, uh, but I, I think that's a real stretch. That's uh, a good bit of hagiography if there ever was some. Uh, and um, uh, Charles I, I, I think, was um, a naive man. Nonetheless, uh, his forces uh, were finally defeated uh, by Cromwell's forces, and he, uh, his uh, son, Charles II, was sent into exile, and he spent time in France, the Spanish Netherlands, uh, as well as um, a couple other places, if I remember correctly. And Cromwell reigned as the Lord Protector over England, Scotland, and Ireland uh, for uh, a good many years, but upon Cromwell's death, and by the end of it, Cromwell had had enough. It turns out that original sin is evenly distributed, and uh, that the, uh, the parliamentary uh, folks were just as difficult as the monarchists. And upon Cromwell's death, uh, they brought Charles II back in uh, from exile. Uh, but the thing about it is, is, and people forget this, is that Charles II was only able to come to the throne because of the Puritans. Now, during uh, the Commonwealth, uh, the Church of England still existed. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer was suspended. That would have been the book from 1552. Um, and uh, services became much uh, simpler. Uh, religious toleration was, was allowed amongst Protestants. So uh, where before, if you were a nonconformist, you were breaking the law, uh, that was now allowable under the Commonwealth. Religious freedom was a really big deal. And uh, so it was under the Scottish Puritans that really paved the way for Charles II to come back and to become king of England. And so you ought not to equate parliamentarians with Puritans or even Presbyterians with Puritans. I'm going to let you go look all that up so that you can differentiate between them. There was a lot of overlap, but they were all distinct groups. And the Presbyterians and the Puritans uh, in Scotland uh, really were huge advocates of restoring Charles II to the throne. As I mentioned, uh, there was a promise of religious toleration uh, that was short-lived. In 1662, uh, where we get the now current, current uh, version of the Book of Common Prayer uh, that is widely used and subscribed to by the vast majority of the Anglican Communion, uh, there were many within the Church of England, within the Church of England, who refused to subscribe to it and to conform to it. And I am sympathetic to their objections. Uh, there are things within the 1662 Book of Common Prayer that are vague and have led to all kinds of misunderstandings and bad practices that we live with today within the life of the Anglican Communion. And so where the Puritans said, we want to continue to reform and we want there to be more clarity in uh, the Book of Common Prayer, I am with them uh, in, that, uh, in that conviction. Uh, and probably the, what is considered uh, the saddest day in the history of the Church of England, uh, the 
Puritans were ejected, most of them, not all of them, some of them did stay, Uh, but in 1662 we have what is called the Great Ejection, and those who were not willing to conform to the Act of Uniformity in 1662 were chucked out of their livings. A lot of really good men uh, lost their jobs uh, in 1662 and gave birth to what we now know as the nonconformist movement, the Congregational Movement, in uh, the life of England, which incidentally um, is now largely liberal um, and revisionist, uh, not um, the theological inheritors of the Puritans. The Puritans were the successors to the English Reformation. Uh, They were the inheritors of, uh, of Cranmer. Uh, they, uh, if many people involved in the Reformation and shortly thereafter during Elizabeth's reign had been alive in the 1660s, they probably would have been some of the ones chucked out of the Church of England during the ejection. In uh, 1618 and 19, uh, King James sent representatives from the Church of England to the Synod of Dort. Uh, when we talk about the five points of Calvinism, you know, tulip, uh, we often think that, well, that's John Calvin. Well, actually, it's not. It was the Synod of Dort, which met in the Netherlands, that came up with those five points as a response to Arminianism, which was a theological controversy alive and well in the Protestant church. And James sent representatives from the Church of England to participate in those conversations. And so to say that the Puritans were an outlier is not true. They were simply on the trajectory that the Church of England uh, was going. The outliers were people like uh, William Laud and Charles I, who were trying to pull the Church of England back into uh, the darkness. The city motto of Geneva, Switzerland still today is out of darkness light, uh, hearkening back to the time of the Reformation. And there were those in England who wanted to go back. And so even though it was political, there were certainly those in England who were willing to shed their blood for the sake of the gospel, to make sure that the gospel would be clearly preached and not obscured by some of the things that Laud and Charles wanted to reintroduce. So the Puritans were not uh, these outliers, and in fact, Uh, After the great ejection of 1662, uh, for nearly a century, the Church of England was dead. There were a few bright lights, but by and large, it was dead until the Wesleys came along. But you remember the Wesleys and George Whitfield, when they tried to bring some renewal back into the Church of England, they were rejected. They were forced to preach in fields. Why? Because the great ejection created a Church of England that was opposed to anything that was seen as enthusiastic and were more concerned with morality than they were with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a hundred years of that is going to harden a lot of hearts. And so it's no wonder that not only uh, was the Church of England dead spiritually, uh, but no one was really listening to the Church of England because they didn't have anything worth preaching. But here was Wesley, this Oxford and Whitfield, Oxford edu- and his brother Charles, all educated at Oxford, ordained in the Church of England, preaching to Welsh miners and farmers and going to the highways and the byways. Uh, Wesley, the Wesleys and Whitfield uh, were trying to bring back into the Church of England what was lost at the great ejection. 
They were trying to put it back on the path in which it was headed. And of course, that challenge still exists today. And people looked at the Wesleys and they looked at Whitfield and they thought, well, you're nothing but a bunch of Puritans. And that word is a pejorative in our language today. Uh, I want to read something that Marilyn Robinson wrote, uh, the great novelist that many of you appreciate. Uh, and she wrote an essay called Puritans and Prigs uh, from her book, The Death of Adam, Essays on Modern Thought. And it's a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth reading all of it. So just bear with me. This is what um, Marilyn Robinson had to say about the Puritans. My reading of Puritan texts is neither inconsiderable nor exhaustive. So while I cannot say they yield no evidence of Puritanism as we understand the word, I can say they are by no means characterized by, for example, fear or hatred of the body, anxiety about sex, or denigration of women. This cannot be be said of Christian tradition in general, Yet for some reason, Puritanism is uniquely regarded as synonymous with these preoccupations. Puritans are thought to have taken a lurid pleasure in the notion of hell, and certainly hell seems to have been much in their thoughts, though not more than it was in the thoughts of Dante, for example. We speak as though John Calvin invented the fall of man when that was an article of faith universal in Christian culture. Yet the way we speak and think about the Puritans seems to me a serviceable model for important aspects of the phenomenon we call Puritanism. Very simply, it is a great example of our collective eagerness to disparage without knowledge or information about the thing disparaged. When the reward is the pleasure of sharing an attitude one knows is socially approved. And it demonstrates how effectively such consensus can close off a subject from inquiry. I know from experience that if one says the Puritans were a more impressive and ingratiating culture than they are assumed to have been, one will be heard to say that one finds repressiveness and intolerance ingratiating. Unauthorized views are in effect punished by incomprehension, not intentionally and not to anyone's benefit, but simply as a consequence of a hypertrophic instinct for consensus. This instinct is so powerful that I would suspect it had a survival value if history or current events gave me the least encouragement to believe we are equipped to survive. So Marilyn Robinson, the great writer and artist that she is of our day, says the pejorative Puritan doesn't really fit the Puritans. Uh, They, you know, to be puritanical means something in our parlance today. And if we're honest, the only passing notions that we have about the Puritans are based on what we read in high school by Nathaniel Hawthorne or by Arthur Miller or by what we might have picked up at the Salem Witch Trials, uh, most of which is all written in the 19th and 20th centuries, not contemporaneous with the Puritans themselves. And that's a great loss because the Puritans are great. They're real Christians. 
They really cared about their faith. And yes, they were zealous for their faith. And yes, they thought about hell a lot because they knew that it was real and they didn't want to see anyone go to hell. They were going to heaven and they wanted people to go along with them. And they struggled mightily over what it meant to incorporate your faith into your everyday life and how it ought to manifest itself in the culture in which they lived. And that was true of any belief thought process in the 17th century. Everyone had their ideas and everyone wanted their ideas to be king. But the Puritans readily believed and heartily believed that they wanted the king to be Jesus. And so they were fantastic. Uh, Some of their works uh, ought to be read today. John Owen is a great favorite of mine. Uh, Samuel Rutherford is is fantastic to read. Bunyan uh, is is not only good to read, he's he's fun to read. Uh, But I would challenge you, if you have disparaging notions of the Puritans, that you would listen, uh, if not to me, at least to Marilyn Robinson, and uh, give them a try. Uh, Go back and and read uh, what they uh, have uh, to say. Because one of the things that you can be certain of is that they're honest about their Christian faith. It's no pie-in-the-sky nonsense. They really understand what it means to struggle as a Christian believer and the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that goes in to Bunyan's work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, It's an allegory uh, for the Christian life, but also it's an autobiography of Bunyan's own spiritual progress. Uh, Bunyan is exhibiting genius in how he is able to mix different genres of writing into one book. And I think that that's why it has such staying power today and why you may have had to read it, at least excerpts of it, uh, while uh, you were in high school or or college, uh, because it's not been surpassed since. You know, there may be people who are really good at writing uh, a novel, uh, but they're uh, absolutely terrible at writing, uh, say, uh, fantasy. Uh, But here Bunyan puts it all together. He combines uh, religion, and uh, he gets into beyond that into theology. Uh, He does have a a lot of fantasy. Uh, And when you read the book, because it is an allegory, you're going to be tempted to try to think, okay, he's saying this, or this is happening, but what does it mean? Uh, Don't fall into the trap of trying to interpret everything. Uh, Bunyan wants you to read this at face value. Just read it. Don't get distracted by the endnotes, especially the ones that try to explain this is what who Bunyan is talking about, because many of the characters are people from real life. Uh, or this was the situation in Bunyan's day, or here he's commenting on this. In my successive teachings, I'm going to get into some of that. But I really want you to read it as it is. I want you, when Christian falls into the slough of despond with pliable, uh, I want you to feel the desperation that Christian feels as he can't get out of the swamp. Uh, When you get to the giant of despair, I don't want you to think, I wonder who he's talking about there. I want you to be frightened by the giant of despair. 
I want you to feel what Christian feels in those moments. Seek to enter the story. And that's why I think that Pilgrim's Progress is so effective. Because as you read it, all of a sudden you find yourself in the story yourself. And as the different characters come along, you think, all of a sudden you, you, when Mr. Worldly Wise Man comes along, and afterwards as you're reflecting on it, you start to see a certain individual in your life in the person and character of Mr. Worldly Wise Man. But remember, these are Bunyan's experiences. And so you may have some theological objections along the way as well, because like Bunyan, it takes Christian a very long time to become a Christian. Now, in the second part of the book, uh, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, it's the story of Christiana and the four boys. And they become Christians rather quickly. Where Bunyan has this great burden that he's carrying into his relationship uh, with Jesus, and it takes him a long time to get to the wicket gate, the narrow gate. And some of you might say, well, that's not my experience. It, it, you know, I went to a meeting one night, and I heard the gospel preached, and I became a Christian. And Bunyan's not denying that. And so if you have some issues and say, well, that's not been my experience, well, it's not supposed to be. It's Bunyan's experience. You know, you may not have stopped off at the village of legality on the way to the wicket gate. You might not have been dissuaded by Mr. Worldly Wise Man, uh, but Bunyan was. And so he's telling his story, uh, but you're going to find all kinds of ways uh, to find yourself in it. And I find myself often, as Christian is making his way, it's sort of like watching a really bad, scary movie where someone's saying, hey, why don't you come this way? And you're saying, don't open the door. Don't go in there. It's a trap. But then there are characters that Christian will meet along the way, and you yourself won't be so sure. Are they good or are they bad? Would I trust them? Should Christian trust them along the way? And even the ones that seem to do good, you think, ooh, they're going to come back and get them in the end. That person's going to turn bad. And they may or may not. But it really is a fantastic journey. And in all of it, what Christian is trying, what what Bunyan is trying to show through Christian, who we find out later on his original name was Graceless, is, is that the Christian life is one of perseverance. It's not sunshine and lollipops. It's not all will be made well if you come into a relationship with Jesus, or that rather that life would be easy. Of course, all will be made well in that you're now in a relationship with the living God. But if you think that your life is easier, Bunyan and the Puritans would say, you have another thing coming. My friend, your troubles have just begun. So as you read it, read it for what it is. It might be good uh, after you read it once uh, to uh, go back again and and then you'll be able to sort of hit up the end notes. You're always going to miss something. Um, There's a lot of detail uh, that is important in Pilgrim's Progress. Um, But uh, overall, enjoy it and enjoy it with one another. Uh, Harkening back to uh, Bunyan's experience of his own conversion when he overheard overheard those three or four women talking about the things uh, of God. When you run into an adventer in the grocery store, uh, ask them, well, how's how's Pilgrim's Progress going for you? Uh, What did you think of the man in the iron cage in the house of interpreter? Uh, Did you you resonate uh, when Bunyan found that, that, well, I won't spoil it for you.
And maybe somebody in the aisle next to you will overhear you and your Advent brother or sister talking about the things of God and be driven to God in his word and like Bunyan, come to know him, love him, and serve him and know what it means to have the burden lifted from their backs. John Bunyan, he's a great man, and he's written a great work of literature, uh, but moreover, a great blessing uh, for us even today in the year 2020 in The Pilgrim's Progress, Part 1. Let's pray. Oh God, uh, we do thank you for John Bunyan. Uh, We thank you for his life and witness. We thank you that we stand on his shoulders, even though he may come from a different tradition. Uh, Lord, we're assured of seeing him in heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that uh, as we enter into this, Lord, even though it's not scripture, uh, we pray that you would speak through it. Uh, For Bunyan uh, speaks in scripture and Uh, The whole work is saturated with your word, and uh, we pray that uh, we would uh, not just be driven into the story, but we would be driven into your word, and that we would be uh, driven closer to you by the witness of a dear Christian uh, who we see so much of ourselves in, and uh, the characters along the way that would either encourage us as we press on to the celestial city, or would discourage us as we seek to press on. Uh, Lord, uh, that you would make us pilgrims, uh, and Lord, that we would be valiant in the fight of faith, knowing that you are the Lord of hosts, a great warrior in whom we put our trust. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.